Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's a returning guest, uh, Dr. Nick Norwitz. So Dr. Norwitz has been on the show a couple of times, actually, for episode 273, where he appeared with Dave Feldman, who has also been on the show a few times. And then episode 280 as a solo episode. So for those of you who've been following along on those episodes, which is coming up on over 100 ago almost at this point. So it has been a little bit. But um, Nick and Dave have worked on this uh, this theory, I guess, called the lean mass hyperresponders, which just looks at the different kind of physiology that could potentially be the case for people who are following a an oftentimes very strict ketogenic diet. So if you're interested in that topic and you haven't heard those episodes, 273 and 280 would be the ones to check out. I also will be having Nick and possibly Dave, if he wants to come as well, back on in the not too distant future, because apparently, as Nick alludes to in this episode, there is some exciting new things that are likely going to be coming out that just aren't publicly available yet. They're they're waiting on some reviews, I believe. So that will be an episode that we'll have coming up. It'll be more specific to that topic if you're interested in. For this specific one, we go a little bit of a different direction, which I'll get into in a bit. But for those of you who are new to Dr. Norwitz, just a little bit about him. Dr. Nick Norwitz obtained his PhD in ketogenic metabolism and neurodegenerative diseases at Oxford University and is now working towards his MD at Harvard Medical School. Nick follows a ketogenic diet and has been heavily involved in research and public conversation around proper application of lower carbohydrate ketogenic ways of eating. For this particular episode, we address the question of how far is too far when it comes to advocating for this way of eating. As a low-carb ketogenic diets have become more popular, a question I kind of have going around right now is like, what responsibility do advocates of this way of eating have when speaking to the application of these dietary protocols? So I dive into this with Nick. We go over some topics relative to that and get into a little bit of what we see the landscape looking like now versus what maybe it looked like a while back. For for some context here, I've been following a low-carbohydrate diet for coming up on 12 years, almost exactly 12 years now. So I've definitely seen the landscape change in terms of people's basic knowledge of it, as well as just like kind of the online rhetoric around it. So I thought it would be worthwhile to address some of those and see what everyone thinks. Like always, if you have any feedback or feel differently as I or Nick do in certain cases, feel free to reach out. Happy to hear what your thoughts are on this particular topic. Also, just a quick reminder that I do have a show raffle option where I raffle off a 30-minute consultation with me every month. The way to enter that is just to share a show or episode on social media. So you find an episode you like, share it with your friends and followers, tag me so I know you did it. That enters you in the raffle, and I will announce those at the start of each month. You can share multiple episodes and get entered more than once if you want. It is just an initiative I've been doing to give back in terms of the listeners who are out there spreading the word, and it does go a long way when people like, subscribe, com- or comment to some degree, yes, uh, but give show reviews and then share episodes so it gets spread to a wider audience. If you do want to support the show in other means, I do have a show Patreon page and support options on the show landing page, which is just 
zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. The show Patreon page does give you access to early release episodes. So like this particular episode has been up there for about a week and a half now. And it also is ad free right to the point. So if you subscribe on Patreon, you can jump right into the topic. Supporting this podcast this year have been my friends at Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. I have full descriptions of how I use both of these products. I've been partnering with them because I do use both of them in my own training and racing. So if you're interested in getting into the weeds a little bit more about how I actually use these products to maybe sense out whether they'd be a useful tool for you personally, at the very end of the show, I've got more thorough descriptions of each of those. For now, just a couple quick announcements about them and in regards to what their promotions they're running at the moment. Element has right now a promotion where they're letting you try out a free sample pack of each of their flavors. Those include citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango, chili, raw, unflavored. If you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HBO, that lets them know you came from here and gets you that free sample pack with your first purchase. They also have no questions asked return policy. So if you get them, decide you don't like them or they're not as advertised the way you thought they would be, they will give you your money back, no questions asked, don't even have to send the box back. Delta G Ketones is something I've been using this year. I've been following the exogenous ketone research for quite some time now, including a few years ago when I had Dr. Brianna Stubbs on. It's gotten to the point where I've uh, found it to be something I'm worth, I find worthwhile putting into my training and racing. So they have uh, a ton of research on their website at deltagketones.com where they have 50 plus published studies and 20 plus ongoing studies. And they also will do a free consultation with you if you're interested in how that would maybe apply to your lifestyle versus kind of how I'm using them. So again, feel free to jump to the end of the episode or wait to the end of the episode to hear how I use that in my own training and racing protocol. It's deltagketones.com. Links to both of these sponsors will be in the show notes as well as the show landing page. All right, Nick, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I think this will be a fun one. I was actually, I mean, we were chatting offline a little bit. You've just had kind of a lot of activity uh, with what you're up to with with Dave Feldman, with your lean mass hyperresponder stuff. And I've been meaning to reach out to you and just get a gauge of whether it was a good time to have you come back on to chat about that. But, you know, our, our conversation was more initiated by some other stuff. So we thought, well, let's wait for maybe some updates to come with some of the other stuff and do a podcast down the road. But for this one, just chat about some other things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we're doing this impromptu, but I, I, I would love to have a conversation. I think we both would about messaging and, mm-hmm. you know, productive messaging versus non-productive messaging. As for the LMHR work, me and Dave keep saying the year 2024 is really going to be the big year. So we'll have some stuff drop and I'll love to come back and uh, chat about that then. But um could definitely put a put a pin in that one for now. Yeah, right on. I'm I'm blanking on what the number of the episode was where you and Dave came on last, but I will absolutely put that in the show notes. So for if listeners you're new to the show and you want to check that stuff out and kind of hear where things were at last time we chatted, they can go and listen to that one. Or if you are a frequent listener and you want to listen to it again, it's probably worth it. I'm sure I could probably remind myself of a few things going back and listening to it. It's been a it's been a fun evolution. Yeah. Um you know, I'll, I'll briefly say where we are right now with some of the, um, the well, Dave's study, the one that's going on on UCLA, all the baseline scans are done for the lean mass hyperresponder cohort. And right now um, they're matching to a similar group to see at baseline, baseline being these people have had these elevated levels for on average four and a half years, mm-hmm. is there elevated plaque? And then there's going to be a, a one-year follow-up. 
and we'll report on that. And then um, we have some other studies going on. It's been really exciting to see what traction it's gained. In fact, we were, me, Dave, and Adrian this morning, we're in a, um, a Zoom call with a like a PhD student who's going to do his PhD probably on lean mass hyperresponders. So we were helping to design that protocol. And uh, there's definitely interest that's growing in the space. Um, so I, I think after our, our next couple projects drop, um, which will hopefully be some heavy hitters, then it'll just, the momentum will carry it. Mm-hmm. So we're only at the very beginning of this, but I think it is very, very fascinating research. So I look forward to coming back and chatting to you about that. But for today, I think uh, we'll just talk, talk a little messaging. bit about media yeah. messaging, social media politics. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give yeah. the listeners a little bit of a background with this. And some of this won't be like overly new information to frequent listeners of the podcast, because I've sort of been like, I've been, I've been speaking this to, to a large degree, just with my own messaging and just for you know background we're talking specifically about like low carbohydrate nutrition so you know for me i've been following a low carbohydrate diet for coming up on 12 years actually i believe in november and when i first kind of got into it it was kind of in that phase of the volick and finney years like dr dominic diagostino was starting to get some recognition for some of his work and it felt like this sort of I was obviously aware that this wasn't a new thing, like low carbohydrate ketogenic diets had been around for a long time, but it was sort of like this next wave of that sort of way of eating, getting a new fresh set of interest in presumably some new topics. One of them being in categories, I should say, one of them being endurance sport. And it was kind of like, this is cool. This is exciting. I've got a lot of curiosities. It seemed to work well with my lifestyle. So then I was invested from a personal standpoint as well to kind of keep learning about it. And it just seems like as it has grown and gone from something where like, if you said ketogenic diet 12 years ago, or even low carbohydrate diet, you'd probably have to follow that up with a lot of information. Whereas now I feel like if I just pulled a random person off the road and started talking about low carbohydrate ketogenic diets, they maybe have a lot of inaccuracies in their mind, but they would be familiar with like the basic idea of that. And it wouldn't be something they would know someone that have a friend. Oh yeah, my buddy, so-and-so they follow that diet or, you know, it's not that uncommon anymore. Um, so through that, like, I guess, time frame, one thing I've started, started to kind of notice, and this is probably also just as much like a coincides with just the increase of usage of things like social media, you know, apps that kind of favor short form versus long form, where it feels like there's been a shift from our focus is on the Volek, Finney, Diagostino type people and their research to there is these recognizable figures that are very much seen as low carb ketogenic advocates, but it's not Finney, Volek, or Diagostino talking, it's someone who is going to be a lot more polarizing and they're going to use a lot of what I would consider kind of like half the story at best type rhetoric. And that scares me because my thought about it is if I was coming into the diet today with no information or very little information, and I started just digging in, I'm probably going to find Finney, Volick and Diagostino later. I'm going to find the person on social media who's telling you that you, you know, carbs are evil, carbs are the devil, like everyone should follow a ketogenic diet, that real kind of one-sided absolutist type of view. And my fear is like, if you start out in that camp or in that view of it, your likelihood of failing is very high. And we're going to end up with more casualties than success stories. And then the true value of low carbohydrate ketogenic or 
for whatever population percentage of the population that that way of eating tends to actually work better for, we're going to end up missing a huge percentage of them and ending up in the long term in a worst case scenario because of people having bad first impressions, I guess, is maybe the way to summarize my my kind of overview of the landscape right now. And then the follow up to that would just be like, what is the proper way to go about kind of re re-steering the ship, so to speak? Because I do see new people like yourself, who I would say is an excellent communicator for the, for if I would come across you, <laughs> I would probably be successful in my opinion, because I wouldn't be fed things that are necessarily inaccurate. And I would likely be a lot more structured with it in a sense that it would be like something where I wouldn't be overthinking things that don't really matter that much or underappreciating the actual big components that go into successfully like following the protocol. And I guess my, this, to summarize that, like how do we promote more of you and less of the absolutist so that when new people do come and get introduced, they have what I would consider a, a good chance of figuring out whether it actually works for them or not. Yeah. Um, before providing an answer, I, I just want to kind of build on some things you said, because it was interesting to hear you take it from a, basically a clinical perspective, like what is the information people are going to latch onto and how is that going to translate to success or not? Um, which was an interesting place to start because what comes to my mind, actually the frustration, despite the fact that right now I'm in my clinical training, um, as a medical student is actually the, the scientific end of it that I see so much potential for ketogenic and, uh, low carbohydrate diets for, you know, scientific advancement. And I see that massively hindered by the simplistic rhetoric, which creates a really negative stereotype of the community as a whole. And that the the scientific progress, which will then translate into the medical progress, is really like given a taint by the people who do come off with really extreme messaging um, that largely is just inaccurate. And it's it's interesting because on the few occasions where I've been able, because I know these people in real life, for, for example, I can maybe name some names later on, stop them and kind of try to explain, look, when you say this, this is the perception. And here I was literally blocking our ability to perform research. And or because of the taint that is now associated with you, which is completely your fault because you said X, Y, and Z, <laughs> I actually don't feel comfortable working with you as a collaborator. And they're like, they're not even defensive usually. They're like, yeah, I get that. And with respect to, you know, what you mentioned about just the the let's say dilution of the low carb space on social media, it becomes very difficult because you have the, you know, the, the Dom D'Agostino's, the Philly and Finney and Bullocks who say are doing the research and then they want to communicate that research, which is great. But research studies take a lot of time to conduct, a lot of time to translate, a, long, a lot of time to read that often goes into the, the like TLDR category, yeah. too long didn't read. Um, whereas things that, you know, um, volume and simplicity gets a lot of engagement. And so the latter is very easy to wash out the former. Um, and it's just a self-perpetuating cycle. That said, I do find there is like an, an undercurrent of people like you and me who appreciate the more moderate stance of like, look, I'm going to tell you about all the benefits but with the appropriate caveats and giving the W's where they're deserved for things that aren't in the low carb sphere, because that's actually a more convincing way to kind of 
progress the science and the broader acceptance of low carbohydrate diets. And what I found is people are actually generally really receptive, even when you push back on their tribe, so to speak. Like I had a tweet about fiber this morning, you read my carnivore tweet before, where I'm like, look, there are benefits here and there are things to be explored, but here are where we go wrong in communicating this message. And pushing so hard sometimes actually creates a hindrance. I don't know if you ever, as a kid, played with oobleck. I'm thinking about that now, but it was like that green substance that, oh, you know, yeah. if you like your hand in it, it would just like melt in. But if you tried to punch it, it would be very solid. Yeah. This weird like, mechanical property. I think about Twitter kind of like that, communicating low carb. It's like, if you just kind of like gently provide the information and the science, people are usually pretty receptive, even if they're on the other end. But if you try to punch them in the face with a message like sugar is poison and by, you know, the transitive property of, food, fruit is poison, then you've completely lost that, you know, mm -hmm. audience member. Yeah. So, you know, oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Do you have more to go? No, I, was, I was just going to say that, that. So finding a way to like balance that middle ground about providing content that's engaging and a little bit of the bait to then transition into the nuance is something I, I'm trying to work on social media and over time, I'm finding things that I do think work. I'm going to talk about them versus don't, but it's definitely very hard and it takes a lot of like reflection and iteration. Mm -hmm. You know, the interesting thing about that, and I agree, I agree with you. There's a, it's a, there's a very delicate balance there. And the one thing I kind of thought about, or one thing that got me thinking about this more, because I've had a more of a moderate stand, or I guess you say like a non-absolutist stance for pretty much the entirety of I'm just not that controversial of a person in general. So it's like, I'm not really probably going to like gravitate towards the, all right, let's make this big wow statement that is going to polarize things. Cause it's probably not the environment that I prefer to be in myself. So like I've tended to kind of have a little bit more of a moderate explanation when asked about it. And the thing that I find interesting about that is when you do get into just like the the conversation online, like you said, there is that like there's that initial like that, that if you finesse it in, I think you have this situation where people who are already curious, they're gonna be able to sort of like weed through some of that and be like, okay, that's a little extreme. Like sugar isn't inherently going to just kill you if you even look at it, which is an extreme example of an extreme example, I guess, but. Uh, they're going to, they're going to kind of know how to navigate that versus the person who's completely unfamiliar with the approach to a large degree. And their first impression is coming from the counter where they say all these low carb keto carnivore folks are so deranged. They say this, that, and the other thing. And that person's like, well, I'm not even going to attempt to engage to get that tiny bit of curiosity that would help them navigate that a little bit better. So in my mind, I'm thinking like, if I just took inventory about my own rhetoric over the years, it's going to be very positive towards low carbohydrate diet. And I also kind of appreciate like in order to kind of have that moderate stance, I probably need to share also the potential downsides of the approach or where it could potentially go wrong. Or the way I talk to my coaching clients is like, we need to look at this with through a lens of there are going to be some positives to this. There's going to be some things where it's like, oh, this would be a great input for you. 
but that may come at the consequence of something else. So we need to balance those, whether that new input is going to be a net positive as a whole versus looking at it as like, let's get your fat oxidation rates as high as we possibly can and ignore any potential downsides to that. Where is that kind of balance where, you know, if we're looking at performance versus just health and longevity, you know, all that sort of stuff. So to me, I kind of thought of what, what I, what I sort of consider too, is just like, what all, what, what on average I'm putting out there in terms of if someone thinks about like me as someone who communicates for this, am I too one-sided or am I giving enough, like, well, here's the downside or here's where the rhetoric around low carbohydrate really does fail to actually do good things. I think there's a balance there too, where if someone sees me as like, well, Zach is willing to push back on some of the absolutist claims, or he's able to appreciate that someone may actually find success with a moderate carbohydrate diet, then if I come to him with a question, he's going to give me the honest answer versus just try to guide me to the direction he wants me to go or wherever his preferences go. Does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. And I agree entirely. The annoying thing that I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about is to no matter how hard you try to take that approach, and I do as well, because you're going to be associated with a particular diet group, the taint of those who are extreme is going to rub off on you such that those who don't spend enough time with you will take those generally pro low carb things you do say, because I mean, that's probably where you lean, like where I lean mm -hmm. and kind of track it towards the more extreme view. And the things that you say that are pushbacks like here's some positive things about fruit, which I'll say every now and then are positive things about fiber. Those kind of like disappear and don't get amplified, mm -hmm. you know? So, so just by virtue of what gets amplified by your own party and by what or perceived party, I should say. And, um, by what they're saying it, like it, it, it changes the lens through which what you say is said. And to be mindful about that as well is like a whole nother level of problem it's not one you can't really it's i don't even know that it's that addressable mm -hmm. but it, it's it's just one to to consider it's a, there's a certain number of uncontrollables that you're just not going to really be able to do much about and then the question just becomes how much time and energy and potential conflict do you create by trying to address those versus just kind of trudging forward on the path you find to be the best path and sort of ignore and I mean, I think like what generated this podcast was like essentially that, right? Where like, I, I made a post on 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 Twitter. Are, are we able to call it X yet with people understanding what we're saying? Or is it just better to we call can. it? We it, can. It's, it's weird. I think the thing that's preventing X from taking on is it's not a verb. Oh, yeah. I say I'm going to X, but then I say, I can't say I'm going to send an X. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tweet. And so because I keep saying I'm going to tweet, it just bleeds back over into Twitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? It does. There's no verb version. Mm -hmm. I think X will take off when there's a verb. Yeah. That's for a good the point. action of I I can't have, I hadn't thought of that. So yeah, Elon needs to get to that get to get that marketing campaign. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't think about that that branding element, mm -hmm. but uh but, uh, but anyway, yeah, to, you were gonna Yeah, to the point to, like there was uh I, I created a bit of a stir, I guess, because I went on Twitter slash X and I made a post where it was kind of like impulsive to a degree where I had been thinking about all these things we've talked about so far. And then I was 
just having a conversation with someone and they shared with me, like, I don't spend a lot of time on the American Dietetics Association's website for, for probably obvious reasons, but like I was in this conversation and they are dietetics. I'm sorry. Um, and they sent me this link of like, Oh, here is their actual low carb or very low carb position and statement and resources. And I wasn't actually aware that that was there. So I was thinking about that. I was like, well, here's an opportunity to say, okay, here's an organization where I would imagine the majority of low carbohydrate ketogenic followers and advocates would be, they're not happy with the ADA in the sense that they think that they think one of two things, I would say, they would think either that the ADA is not doing enough where they should be pushing more of a low carb ketogenic lifestyle, or at least giving more opportunities for people to come across that side of their option table. And then there's the people who think they should just totally turn ship and be advocating nothing but ketogenic low carbohydrate diets. And I tend to fall in that in the former where I think, yeah, I think the ADA probably could benefit from increasing the visibility of low carb ketogenic diets. I I'm not hundred percent sure as to whether that's a situation of their threshold of we need to hit this level of science and rigor before we start doing that versus mine, my threshold's probably lower given that I prefer that way of eating. So I try to think about it like that. If I were, if I stepped away and I was totally neutral in the topic in the sense that I ate just whatever I wanted, would I look at this as, is there enough scientific research towards low carbohydrate ketogenic diets being something that we should move from a backseat option to here's our primary stance and anything else comes secondary to this. So you try this first. And if that fails, then we move to these other options. But generally speaking, the post was basically to highlight the ADA does have some of these options. So if someone tells you it's totally against it, here is a statement that suggests they aren't against it. They may not do a good job of marketing it. I didn't say that. So maybe that would have been a better post where I'd have been like, if I would have added to that, I guess if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have posted the same thing I did. But at the end, I would have said, now they may not do a great job of marketing this. And hopefully that's something they improve upon. But there is no like complete absent of it. it was more or less where I was getting at with that post. And that I think probably stirred up a few more of the absolute side of low carb ketogenic online. And they looked at it as this is a, and they look at it as any defense of the ADA is a, 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 like a sign off. They've done everything they need to do, carry on type of messaging. And so it kind of spirals from there where like now it gets off topic into other things and stuff like that. And then it just becomes like, you know, the, your typical online back and forth, uh, like sidebar topics, things that aren't necessarily like relevant to the initial post. And then, you know, you, I mean, I don't have to explain to you how it goes, but <laughs> this is, um, it's such a perfect example. And I, it might be in part because I don't know if you realize where the recent stir around the ADA probably comes from on Twitter, which is actually, I, I think, me over the past couple of weeks. So, I just want to let you to blame for all this. (laughs) So, so, but I'm going to give you the background because I think this is a great example of, 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 of how, while we probably align almost perfectly in terms of our opinions, we end up on basically two different sides of a skirmish. So just to kind of look at present time and see one of your recent posts, you have one 
um, October 8th from a few days ago. This is what the ADA is getting so much grief over from low carb absolutists. It's a little picture of chicken with mushrooms, a little roasted potatoes, green beans, and carrots. Mm-hmm. And it's like a my plate sketch, which looks quite healthy. I mean, do I think, you know, potatoes are great? No, but like this is the, this, if, if every patient with diabetes ate like this, I'd be extremely happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they provide low carb options. Absolutely. And they have in fine print things about low carb that are actually quite positive. And if you go on their website, and I've I've posted this as well, they have some recipes that are very, I think, appropriate and low carb. Let me see if I can find the picture I posted on uh, the sixth. It was like a shrimp scampi, a salmon, a uh, chicken dish, like a, a meat and onions dish, all like very low carb, like four grams, you know, per serving or whatever. So they provide those options. It's absolutely true. Where I think the whole recent issue arose with the ADA is um, they had a post. They, I think it's still their pinned tweet, actually. They posted something about, we're doing everything we can to fight diabetes. They like used very strong language. You saw the dance number they had? Very well choreographed. Uh-huh. And so I'll see if I can find my original tweet. But I saw that. And then I started reading some of their guidelines and... And what I saw is something that I I really take a lot of issue with. Okay, this was September 6th. And um, I write something very clickbaity, which is like eyes open faced, holy cannoli, the ADA claims we are doing everything we can to stop diabetes. But when you click on their website link, straight up, it recommends pizza. And I'm not exaggerating here because what they do, and this is something I find bothersome, which you see in the conversations you know, we're talking about with the low carb absolutists is they take something and then there's like a logic slippage Mm -hmm. and a slippery slope phenomenon where you start with a picture you just showed, which, you know, falls into the my plate schema, but is actually very appealing. You got carrots, green beans, mushrooms with chicken and a few potatoes. They go off that, which is a picture of health and they say, here's my plate. Here's, you know, our approach to finding a balanced diet, which I didn't don't think is a great term. And this is actually straight from the ADA. It says, for example, in a slice of pizza, the crust will be the carbohydrate, the cheese and any meats um, on top will be the protein, and the tomato and sauce and any veggies on top will be the non-starchy vegetable. Where they literally recommend just plain pizza as an option for a well-balanced option. So in my opinion, the... Bad advice isn't offset by the decent options. And this is a more extreme example that I DM'd you earlier, but it's like if you went to a cardiologist and like, I'm going to give you the option to eat a healthy diet and exercise and get great sleep or, you know, smoke and lay on the couch. Here are your two options. Like the fact that the former is a good option doesn't make the fact that the latter is an absurd and terrible Mm -hmm. option. It it doesn't, it doesn't make up for it. And when you start to dig into the, like the ADA's recommendations, it's like, They have some great options, like I highlighted, but they also have lots of like, you know, apple crisp, like breakfast cookies, peaches and cream, this, that, and the other. And you could make the argument playing devil's advocate that, okay, these are some tools and they're going to be better than, you know, certain other things. And, you know, if people actually followed the portion recommendations, which honestly nobody ever does who eats like a serving of cereal, then maybe it would be reasonable. But to equate these things to have like literally pancakes and syrup right next to eggs for breakfast and having those as perceived equals 
on your patient-facing information, I do find that very problematic. And that's coming from a place now trans- transitioning back to the clinical where I see it hurting people. And I, this isn't like a minority opinion by me. It's like I, I point this out to other med students. They get angry. I have attendings at various Harvard hospitals when they see these things in the hospital or online, they will tweet it to me because they know I'm going to tweet it. Yeah. They want me to because they're <laughs> angry too. It's like it's, the physicians aren't making these recipes and actually telling their patients to use them. Mm-hmm. But these are the resources available to people. And, you know, if you're someone without extensive nutrition literacy, you're not really going to call out the BS. You're going to say, you know what, this, you know, breakfast cookie with Splenda and the peaches and cream smoothie, the ADA says it's a great option. So let's go for it. And the CDC is retweeting it. So yay. You know, mm-hmm. so I think they're falling prey to, you know, th- this this slippery slope logic that's it's insidious in the way it kind of like lets really bad advice, corrosive advice creep in to what on the surface might be actually a reasonable message of options. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it's kind of a Trojan horse. It's a it's here's here's the way I've got some follow up questions and just kind of thoughts about that. I think one is. When, when you look at just the first part where we talk about like the pizza, right? So you can probably make a pizza that actually fits the same general parameters of that plate that I showed where from a health standpoint, it's, I mean, you can make arguments about satiety and whether someone is going to feel like they actually had a meal after that versus that first plate I showed. And, you know, then we get into the weeds a little bit about like, what is satiety and how is that going to change from one person to the next? And, you know, I mean, I think we can probably, if we wanted to, we could probably get a pretty good answer as to whether one would be better than the other in most cases. But in reality, like the pizza that they're talking about is not the pizza that anyone who sees that marketing piece is thinking about. They're thinking, oh, I go to Domino's and I get a pizza and they're probably not only not thinking that that pizza is different from the actual ingredients on it relative to the pizza the ADA is promoting, but it's also probably, they probably haven't even considered serving size at that point. So they're less likely to even, they're not going to follow the right ingredient ratios. And then they're also not going to follow the right serving size. So it is one of those things where I can see it's kind of like, that's problematic, right? So how do we get the average viewer to just assume like, oh, if the ADA is saying pizza is healthy, they likely have a different definition of pizza than you know, the fast food chains out there that are selling me pizza. They don't specify though. They don't say right. like mm-hmm. Russell, this much cheese and this much veg. They literally mm-hmm. show a picture of pizza. Yeah. So I mean, that's where they could probably improve. I would say like, and, and here's where I think they probably, or here's maybe another interesting kind of side topic is like, so my guess is the ADA is thinking, how do we get people to even pay attention to what we're doing versus just saying like, just either not seeing it or just ignoring it. So they're they're using the same marketing tactics that any of these food companies are going to use, which is going to be a, a, a healthy amount of sensationalism, a healthy amount of better positioning than it actually is to draw you in. And then I think my guess is their hope is they draw you in. And then once you get in, the resources that are more appropriate to what they should be doing. So someone who's willing to dive a layer deeper is going to actually find the right tools to be successful versus someone who just sees that marketing piece and then rushes off to Pizza Hut or Domino's. Um, that would be my guess. But then online, I mean, that's a charitable assumption I mean, on my part. Their recipes, their apple crisp recipe, first ingredient, quarter cup brown sugar, then all purpose flour. 
oats mm-hmm. and margarine. Like this is the recipe they're providing. Right, just right. Here's the counter to that. So let's say I see that and I'm like, oh, that looks great. The ADA is speaking my language. I'm heading in. So then I go in there. Step two for me is, well, what does it mean to have that item that drew me in? And then if I look at their resources and I'm honest with myself, what that's going to mean is I start with that plate I shared. And then if I do pull the lever for that apple crisp, it's probably a much smaller serving size according to what they're going to suggest than what I would envision when I'm coming in. So I may feel like I kind of got tricked, but, or, or maybe another way to look at it is I may feel like, uh, or you may run the risk of getting someone who's not going to take that second step. Cause you know, another layer of friction is going to lower the amount of people that are actually going to get to that spot. And then you have, it becomes a question of, are you getting more casualties with a sensational advertisement, but a very different explanation in terms of what the recs actually are once you get there, then you're getting from drawing in and assuming people are going to take the second step. Does that make sense? I, I appreciate you trying to make the devil's advocate argument. I do think it's a little bit of a stretch because it's like, do you, do you realistically think that somebody's going to, like the majority of people are going to come and see, Ooh, I look, I look apple crisp. This is tasty. I'm going to make the recipe that I'm going to have just the portion they offered, which let's be honest, nobody really does that. Mm-hmm. And then kind of towards better resources and over time, see their A1C come down. Or do you think they're going to take the apple crisp and the cookies as license to have those around, make the cookies in batch and then go through a tray very quickly. I, th- I think they're more likely to go to the store and not even make the cookies, but just buy them pre-produced in a most hyper. Let's say they made the cookies. Let's, let's yeah. say they even make them. I okay. still think it's going to be a problem, mm-hmm. but I, I just don't think that this is going to translate into clinical success. Right. No, I don't think so either. And I think that's how we got to where we got with the original food guidelines in the food pyramid. And I, and this is another kind of part to that where I do think where 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 I struggle here isn't that I think the ADA is doing the right thing. I don't for the most part. I think though that in order for us to really win that battle, we have to be very clear about where the ADA is wrong and where they are not wrong or at least not harmful. So the reason that I gave so much pushback when people jumped on that thread was because nobody would even dare tell me what the actual recommendations were from the ADA because it, well, they knew just as well as I did. If they went in there and looked at what the ADA is actually going to tell people to eat, it is going to be very in line with someone who would have success assuming they follow that, 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 that actual piece of advice that they get once they get into that recommendation. So to me, it was like in order to get to that part, where I was going to agree with some of these people who are chiming in, or we could get to that question. I was like, first, I want you to admit that this, where we're at with this, I want honesty about where we're at with this. And where I see us at it with it is we got an organization who's using all the tricks that the big food organizations are doing to draw people in. They have an unrealistic assumption, most likely about how people are actually going to take that information and use it. And that's going to create problems probably larger than what is necessary if we could find a different route forward. But I don't think we help the situation if we're just 
throwing them completely under the bus and saying it's all terrible. Don't even touch them with a 10 foot pole when there actually are resources on there that it could be valuable, you know, including the low carb, very low carbohydrate dietary options. So I think it's like one of those things where I think you can go a long way in terms of gaining allies by saying, Hey, the ADA actually has some reasonable recommendations, but there's this big question you got to ask, which is when I look at that well-structured meal, is that something I can stay consistent with? And, and this is where, um, where I find it really interesting because you get people who they know from experience that that's just not going to work for them because they're not going to stick to it. They're honest with themselves. They say, I could start with that plate and I could even have that plate three times a day and just rinse and repeat, or I could put that on the plan, but I'm not actually going to do that. I'm going to deviate from that because it's not sustainable for me as an individual. That can be true for you, but not someone else. So I think just like, and this kind of comes back to the beginning where I think like a lot of times the online rhetoric, it goes straight to demonize everything about the ADA, ignore any positive about it. So then I feel like as a member of the low carb community, that that voice is trending the, or I guess the pendulum, as you put it, is swinging too far to the absolute demonization side of things. And I feel like let's bring that back a little bit and let's make sure that all the facts are on the table. Once we get those facts on the table, let's nitpick and criticize as much as we can. But I was being very stubborn in the sense that I'm not going to start the nitpicking, criticizing side of things until you get on the same page with me, not you specifically, but some of the people that were conversing with me, get on the same page with me that there are, you know, recommendations on here that for some people are likely reasonable but are very one dimensional. So it's not going to be a population level success story with them. Yeah. I agree on the whole, I guess this is, this is where it comes to the art of uh, engagement, nuance, and, and taking like productive stances, because I, I do think I have to differ with you with respect to like the ADA examples, because I think it's on, they're making fools of, this is like the parallel to the carnivore person saying sugar causes cancer, vaccines make your head explode and <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And then by association, you get tainted. So like a medical body that is recommending apple crisps and pancakes and syrup, they're tainting themselves. This is on them for them to step up and rationalize why they're doing this or improve. I don't see it as productive. I see it as harmful. I think that's the prevailing opinion among physicians I talk to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's actually very appropriate to, in effect, uh, especially as someone who you know is, is a medical trainee, throw them under the bus, so to speak. And I'll tell you, Part of the reason I'm willing to do that is because I know it'll get traction and there's productivity in that, in that it builds social capital for later expense, if that makes sense. It does, but it feels like it's just doing the same thing that they did then. And at what point then are we just perpetuating that pendulum where like my assumption is like, I don't think the ADA the people who are designing this are out to lunch. I think they're thinking, how do we get that social capital? Just like some other people are thinking that. And I think that what ends up happening is you get like, you get like the majority in the middle of that. 
where they're just like, well, where is the actual like truth to this and what it, or where are the half truths and the full truths and that sort of thing. So that they're actually, most people, I think they're just looking for like, they're looking for like all the potential inputs and how it's going to play out for them if they go about this piece of advice. And I think most people come to this thinking to some degree, they're going to get half the story from one side and the other half from the other, and it's going to balance out. And my hope is like, how do we get to a point where both sides are more willing to say like, here are the advantages of our approach. Here are the disadvantages. And then the other side says, here are our advantages. Here are our disadvantages. And it's not such a canyon sized chasm between the two that a person can look at it and be like, okay, well, I know myself. And if I go this way, I can deal with the potential downsides of that particular approach because I know it's sustainable for me to say abstain from some of that stuff. Whereas the other person can look at it. They're like, they maybe look at the other side where they're like, you know, the downside of this approach is very small for me personally versus the upside. And that's just a really hard proposition for a person to expect to get given that kind of like more sensational, like side of the storytelling. And I mean, to be fair, Nick, I think you actually probably do as good a job of this as any where you your, your online rhetoric is very much well-balanced in the sense that I know you're a fan of the ketogenic diet and I know that is something you're really interested in. So I have an assumption about you that you're going to probably be much more excited about that way of eating than other ones. So I know that, and I know that the information you're going to provide is likely going to be more in line with that because it's what you're interested in. But I also know that you're not going to blatantly say, you're not going to withhold information from me for the sake of promoting it. And you're also not going to put out information that you know is false to try to get more engagement. And I don't see that from some of the like really big names in the low carb movement. I see the exact opposite. I see them thinking, I know how I'm going to get engagement and it's going to be by withholding this and sharing that. And they just put it on rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse yeah. and repeat. So for me, that puts me in a position where I find myself playing devil's advocate of things where I think in practice, I probably wouldn't actually do. And I get stubborn about like, well, I'm not going to answer like, then this was the example. People wanted me to answer this question about how would I recommend the ADA to my family member? And I'm like, we can get to that topic. It's a fun topic, but first you're going to answer my initial question and they wouldn't answer it because they knew what it would say. And like, that was me trying to get to a level where We've got all the cards out on the table about the ADA. Now we can get to criticizing because we've done our justice or we've done our due justice in, uh, or I'm sorry, our due diligence in like laying out like what the landscape actually is when it comes to what they're recommending. Because a passerby, if I would have just just joined in on the on the the absolute view, would have came by and thought like, oh well, I guess the ADA is recommending that as one person put it, gorging on pastries all day, which obviously they don't advocate. Um, so I mean, like, I find that to be kind of that, 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 that's where I guess I was more or less being stubborn about is like, I felt like, or maybe if I back way up beyond just that particular thread, I just think like the rhetoric as a whole within the low carb ketogenic carnivore diet has shifted enough towards where we're, we're holding back on stuff that or we're, we're, we're holding back on sharing things that are potentially negative about this approach or 
things people should consider about it so that they navigate it properly and getting really heavy on the potential positives. And I don't see that being a sustainable move for the diet as a whole. I think it would, it's probably going to hurt it long-term if anything. I agree. And I'll just highlight some areas I, that I see repeatedly and we can maybe delve into whatever you want there, but things like, I mean, generally it's demonization of the other. Mm-hmm. So anti-nutrients, fiber, seed oils, fruit, those are the things I see again and again and again in climate as well. Um, so this starts to bleed over into other topics, which can become very dangerous. Um, and it's just, it, it weakens the position. It weakens the side when you say something like cow burps, cow farts, actually, it should be burps, but the person said farts <laughs> nothing to do with human health. And it's like, now you come off as just a climate denier. You're not making a productive point. Um, and the same thing is true with like, oh my God, the oxalates in that dark chocolate are going to kill you or fruit is all fruit is bad or X, Y, and Z. Seed oils is another one. Um, artificial sweeteners is another one or non-nutritive sweeteners. These are all things that, you know, if, if you want to ask my opinion in one word on non-nutritive sweeteners, good or bad, I'm going to say typically bad, but I'm not going to say having a diet Coke is going to cause a glioblastoma and you're going to die in a year. I'm going to cite, you know, what evidence I have and say, here are the data and you can decide whether or not this is compelling enough for you to change your, you know, your decisions. And here are the limitations of the data, um, you know, and, and here's my, here's what I decide to, to give a concrete example, because I realize I'm talking about, but let's talk about artificial sweeteners. You know, there's a lot of confusion about them. I actually think the data is pretty strong that they have a negative effect. The whole carcinogenic thing, I'm, I'm not super sold on. I don't think the evidence is but things like there was a really cool study. I don't know if you saw me tweet about it, but it was in uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. Um, and it was showing that that um, low doses of aspartame, the equivalent of two to four Diet Cokes per day uh, in a mouse model was sufficient to induce anxiety that was transgenerationally transmissible through the male line, such that even the F2 generations, the grandchildren, so to speak, had an anxious phenotype. Which is really interesting. Now, what are the limitations there? Can I claim that Diet Coke is causal for anxiety in humans? No. But for me as an individual, my considerations are, well, this provides, you know, basic evidence that it might. And quite honestly, whether or not Diet Coke is poison or excellent, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say it's excellent and water is better. I don't really care. So I'm going to have water. You as an individual might say, okay, this is a really important tool for me and it's superior to regular Coke and therefore I'm going to have it. And as an adult human being, like just make an informed decision. I want you to have the data and make an informed decision. A lot of the issues in nutrition don't have clear cut answers because we don't have the data and probably will never have the data to, you know, come to a conclusion, especially you mentioned earlier longevity. We have no great data on what diet's going to make you live forever. I don't care what people say. Like, we really don't. You can make a best guess, but you might be inching out months at best. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's no, like, here's the formula for living to X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. and so it's like, you can always call out limitations of data. At the end, I think that's what's important is to say, like, 
what are the what are the the what what is the best guess I can get from the data that are available, and what are the limitations of the data? That's what I see not happening a lot in low carb, where people just make extreme claims without caveats, along with demonizing the other. That's kind of like the, the two pillars that really bother me. Mm-hmm. And I do think it kind of like it it just it it undercuts the progress and destroys the ethos in the space. Yeah, yeah. No, I th- I agree with one hundred percent there. I have a question. I mean, if this isn't like. You, I can appreciate if you're just using this as an example, but I'm curious now if you are familiar with the research enough to answer the with with respect to aspartame. Is there because I mean, like I find the studies interesting, but then it always becomes a thing of like, well, what else is available from a from an evidence standpoint? And do we have any sort of human outcome data that would suggest that anxiety is heightened with that input that would, I mean, something even as simple there's, as like, there's epidemiology, there's okay. associational data, but again, it's not the kind of interventional study you're going to very easily be able to do. Mm-hmm. So we have epidemiology showing that there's an association. We have biological plausibility because the aspartame breaks down into components that actually change the transport of amino acid precursors into the brain. The aspartame has a phenylalanine component. Mm-hmm. And um, then we have animal model data and we have human data showing disruption of the microbiome with changes in other physiological parameters like glucose intolerance. And we know the microbiome has associations with, you know, mental health. Sure. So there's a lot there. Do I have an RCT showing diet Coke causes anxiety? No. And I probably never will. So you can take that what it's worth Mm -hmm. and then make your own decision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at at the end of the day, there's going to be some, there's going to be some of that, I think, where you have to look at what's available and then make a call based on your own circumstances. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious though, if there's any, any sort of study that would look at just here, we have like a group of people who essentially have never touched aspartame versus a group that had a frequent usage. Um, and their lifestyles were like similar enough. I've obviously there's always going to be confounders there, but similar enough where we see some sort of like uptick in whatever they would use to assess anxiety, uh, in them and their offspring, that would be an interesting, uh, piece of evidence if it's out there yeah i mean there is epidemiological data i do not think it will be controlled for other lifestyle variables you're Mm going to have a healthy user bias yeah Mm -hmm. and again i guess that's the limitation of what evidence you can possibly collect it's Mm -hmm. not that's another thing is is it's not always clear to i think the lay public like what is fair evidence to ask for for a particular question Mm -hmm. and with respect to aspartame I would claim it's unfair to request, oh, I want like a large scale RCT that is controlled in these ways for this outcome. Mm-hmm. You're realistically probably not going to get a, a study that's powered enough in a free living environment to kind of get get those outcomes. So you're you're limited to best guess. Um, just like we'll never have a diet RCT showing what prevents Alzheimer's disease because you're never going to randomize two people yeah. or randomize two groups of people to diets that they stay on for 30 years. You're just never going to have those data. Mm-hmm. So we can only guess based on, yeah. you know, the aspartame, I, I love the topic of healthy user bias and kind of how that, imp- how that impacts the, the, the outcome, because I think this one is important where like, if you demonize something long enough, the healthy people are going to avoid it. So you are going to create that. Then it's like, how do you control or can you control aspartame would be an interesting one. Cause I, I, I mean, I just don't know, but I wonder like the history of aspartame, if you could somehow gauge how the public perception has felt about that because there's people who think it's very healthy for them so that would be like people doing 
a whole bunch of really healthy stuff, but having aspartame. And then there's people who think it's terrible and they're, if they're thinking it's terrible, they're also probably, so you may get healthy user bias with that particular example on both sides. I'd be curious. Yeah. Just, I mean, we probably don't have this evidence, but if there'd be some way to kind of gauge like public percent, like polls throughout history of aspartame suggesting like where the public opinion of it was similar to like politicians where we can oh from the 50s to the 60s aspartame was seen as this great health input and then from the 70s to 80s it was seen as this total negative or you know i'm just yeah. making up date oh yeah over time yeah sort uh-huh. of, yeah yeah because you could I, shift I, that what i would say is it, in all honesty it's probably very individual like one human study well, it was mostly a rat study, but they had a human component. I think it was in Nature. It was from the Weizmann Institute. I think it was ZV, the, the ZV paper. Um, but what they did was they took um, individuals who were naive to um, non-nutritive sweeteners. I actually think they used um, aspartame in the earlier experience, but then they focused most of the experiments on, experiments on saccharin. But what they found was they could induce glucose intolerance within a week of feeding people saccharin. But it was a seven-person study. Um, and there were four responders who became glucose intolerant and three who didn't. Mm. And it yeah. wasn't like, 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 you know, like a gradation. It was like, there were very four clear responders with like big effects. And then there were four who just didn't touch them. Yeah. In a week. Now, maybe they would have been affected over a longer period of time, but nevertheless, there was like clearly a resilience there where it didn't impact them much. Mm-hmm. And so there's probably, you know, a, a, a broader truth to that. Now, in a seven-person study, you're never going to know, like, what the full ex- effect size is. Yeah. But I think that you're going to be individuals with sensitivities. The fact of the matter is, because we don't have broader data, you're you're kind of gambling. So then it comes down to, again, like, individual choice. Me, mm-hmm. personally, I can take or leave sweet. So I'm just going to have a glass of water because all things being equal – I think the water is probably going to be a better bet in the end. And I don't really care otherwise. Yeah, You're probably not risking inc- surpassing the threshold of water. <laughs> yeah. That is always the, there's the always kind of the back pocket answer is like, you know, like, Oh, it's a dose. Well, yeah. 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 The dose makes the poison and water's got a pretty high dose to become a poison. Uh, but then it comes back to what you're saying before. Like for you, that's great for someone else that diet Coke two diet cokes a day may make everything else for whatever reason stay on track. And then for them, that's going to be a net improvement versus uh, a net deficit. So yeah, I'm not millicent on these things. Like my dad drinks a bunch of diet Coke mm-hmm. and I know I'm not going to sell him on it. So I'm like, all right. But are you worried about the genet or the, the, the carry? <laughs> oh, well he's <laughs> I'm, I, I exist already. You can't do anything anymore. So to what degree I have anxiety, which has really been wrenched up this year. Maybe I should just blame him and his Diet Coke yeah. habit. All your anxiety blame. Good idea. Him. I never thought about that. There when was I'm something... stressing out for my next USMLE, I'll just tell him. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is something you may. I thought about this when you talked about kind of the pass down effect. There are recommendations against things like aspartame for pregnant women, though, aren't they? That that That's not like outside of the the stretch of what recommendations say is, or am I thinking of something else? Pregnancy? I'm actually not sure for pregnancy. Okay. It's not something that comes I, up. I can't remember edit. why I'm thinking this, but I thought I heard recently that there was like, there was some reason, or there was, there was reason to believe that that would be something that would maybe be on to be thought about, but. Um, I mean, for, for particular conditions. So like there are medical, like phenylketonuria is one, like inborn error of metabolism where you can't, 
process the uh, phenylalanine. And so the phenyl aspartame gets broken down. So you don't want to have aspartame if you have a baby with phenylketonuria, something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, you screen for that. I, and I, yeah, I, that would be a very specific condition. I don't think broadly. Right. Mm-hmm. You, uh, Not population wide. I, I mean, I, if I, if, 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 and, or when, my partner is pregnant. I'm going to push her not to have Diet Cokes, all things being equal, because you're gestating for nine months. You might as well give the baby the best chance to got. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know, have a glass of water. Yeah. You can always default. <laughs> so, yeah, no. My mom, when she was pregnant with me, apparently had a uh, a lot of macaroni and cheese and root beer. Okay. That was so, but, but she's been like 100 pounds her whole life somehow. One of those people. <laughs> Um, so hopefully you got her genes right <laughs> yeah no i i i i let's just say i i've never cut carbs to lose weight okay yeah that makes sense um no it's actually it's ironic because if i didn't develop colitis i probably would still be smashing fudge and cookies and stuff <laughs> like you should have seen what i ate in college um it was it was an interesting turn of fate we like to joke that uh, my MD PhD was actually a backup career. I would have been a baker or something. Like I loved to bake from like age 12. I used to actually have, a, I started a baking club in high school, um, baking for bears. I used to raise money for the World Wildlife Foundation and polar bear conservation. Made like the most sugary, obscene things, like those like seven layer bars with the condensed milk. Yeah. Yeah. Those. Oh my God. <laughs> Not so yeah, either it's a good thing you given current information that you didn't go that path, or you could think of it in a positive. You're a sharp enough guy where had you gone that route, who knows what kind of like um, options you would have come up with that would be less less uh, detrimental for someone with with that issue. <laughs> well, I don't know if it would have been highlighted to me as an important issue, you know, because uh-huh. before you, I mean, there are some people who just like pick up you know, metabolic health as something that they're really interested in. You might even be one of those people who never really had like a serious health condition. I actually mm-hmm. don't know your medical background, but I think a lot of people come to it through their own personal struggles. And I was only mm-hmm. woken up, so to speak, because I thought I could outrun a bad diet, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I ate a lot of junk along with like after eating my five a day, et cetera. And I'm like, but I'm going to burn this off. And I thought I could get away with it. Mm-hmm. I was humbled by, by my biology. And then it just opened my eyes to, you know, the the power of um, focusing on what you put in your body for a wide range of, wide range of conditions beyond just, just weight. Um, So that's how I came to it. But honestly, I still love to bake as an activity. Every Saturday morning, I bake something um, low carb, but I just like the, the activity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just find it fun. So what's, what's your favorite thing to bake these days or does it change quite a bit? It tends to change. Um, my, I'm actually at home right now. I'm, I'm moving between like family home between apartments. So for a few months I'm home. Um, and recently I've been making this bread that I'm fine tuning. I call it fungi bread because this is going to sound really weird. But one day we had leftover mushrooms and I'm like, you know what? These mushrooms are kind of spongy. Might actually make a great base for like a moist cake. And it worked so well. Yeah. With like coconut mana and um, like uh, made like a, um, a like a, a candy pecan topping with like a maple allulose. Steve Hanley from RX Sugar tends me, sends me like tons of 
RX uh, Alivo stuff. So like put put it around the pecans and top it with like like a lot of dark chocolate, and it's really moist and good. So I've been been fine tuning that, and then I take a little bit of the uh, even take a little bit of honey because I can actually have honey with staying in ketosis. Just dose it right and have it generally post workout. Mix it with some cream cheese as a frosting. It's great. And yeah. honestly, like I don't even I don't even cared. I would be just as happy eating hard boiled eggs, but I like the activity of baking it. Yeah, and there is culture around food. Like my mom again doesn't struggle with weight. She loves it. So it's like a nice thing to, for me, literally just as an activity to make it and share it with someone. That's not something we even talked about, but like, you know, the culture around food is, for sure. mm-hmm. is big. Um, so yeah. I Well, and I, here's the other thing too, like to go back, to, if we want to circle back to the original topic too, it's like, here's an opportunity where like, if you have a friend or a relative who's like, oh, there's Nick again on his crazy ketogenic diet. They come and visit and you make them this really cool thing that they're like, how is this? This doesn't make sense. And they, and they enjoy it. And they realize like, this is one of the battles I chose to try to fight early on in my low carb is like, why are we calling low carb ketogenic unsustainable? We have just an unlimited number of options of things you can create that are low carb ketogenic friendly. So the, the argument that, Oh, how could you go without this for the right? It's, it's that that's, you know, kind of one of the silly ones on the other side that they tied that they try to pull out that I don't think is really yeah. you know, all that, that, uh, accurate, I guess. I, it does come down circling back to the original topic, I suppose, of creating something that's palatable to a new user mm-hmm. and that may or may not include a low carb apple crisp recipe. Like I'm not against these things as tools. Um, but, but I do think it requires like responsible and appropriate messaging. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's fun and creative. I, do I think that my pecan and coconut mana and honestly butter laden chocolate cake is the best for weight loss and what I recommend it for like your starting journey? No, but it, it's like use case for where you are. Um, yeah. It's, I, I, I have no issues. Well, Nick, I'm on like a four or 5,000 calorie diet. So I'll take that recipe. <laughs> yeah. How's your training right now? Are you training for something specifically or is yeah. that just your I've basal? Got, I've got, no, usually it's not quite that high on average. I'm probably more of like three, 4,000 on average, but right now I'm kind of on the final phase of uh, training for a hundred miler. So that usually just means a lot more low intensity, high volume. So for some perspective, I did if you look at, I'm finishing up the fourth week here, but this is where it'll end up. I went 130, 140, 100, 150 miles as the last four. And then I'll wow. do a two week taper and race a hundred miles. Uh, so yeah. What you does your a- daily diet look like? I'm sure everybody listen. I'm asking, I'm, I'm asking for the listeners <laughs> who are like, that's the question that's going to everybody's mind right now is like, yeah. I want him to now say what he eats in a day. You know, the hardest part is uh, like, or one of the reasons that I, the, where I've kind of gotten, I'll, I'll just back up a little bit. Like my inputs from a macronutrient standpoint have been pretty consistent since I start. I took about maybe a year and a half, two years to really fine tune, like what I wanted from a macronutrient ratio through different phases of training. And then it became a point of, okay, I know this is what works for me now. Where do I get these inputs? So I've done everything from like mostly plant-based to mostly animal-based with those inputs. And what I find the biggest challenge is when you get up to like those bigger days like that is you hit like so many like things so early, you have to find like low volume, uh, high energy inputs. So you don't just end up like having like an ungodly amount of fiber on board and things like that. So, you know, for me, it's like, you know, one thing I'll lean on real heavily, like this time is like 
just olive oil. Like I'll put out, like, instead of adding, you know, I might have like a stir fry or something for dinner. So if I'm in like off season, I'll just have the stir fry. But this point right now, I might be putting hundreds and hundreds of calories of olive oil on it. Um, yeah. So like a lot of, or the other one is like, I'll be making eggs. Well, I'm going to put like, I'm going to put in some heavy cream or like cheddar cheese on top of that and just load up the calories there. So I'm getting more fat and less extra protein and other volume along on the, along the way for it. Um, yeah. yeah, people are interested. I actually have a couple Instagram posts that I did during this training block that go over just kind of what I ate in a day. So I think, I think there's two of them up there right now and I'll probably do another one this week because this week it'll be a little more. I've got one that's like 3,500 calories, one that's like, I think 41. And then I'll probably try to get one that's like a reflective of like, oh yeah, you just ran 150 miles this week. You're probably having some days that are maybe closer to 5,000. So people can get kind of a more like overall perspective of it. Damn. That sounds fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when are you training for an ultra marathon? Is that what I hear? <laughs> <laughs> me no what do you mean you, oh you you've got you've got, uh, you got boston already that's enough right well you know my do you know my med, my my running history medical history yeah i have some yeah. bone problems I can't run anymore but yeah you're more you do more strength work now right or yeah I, strength. if honestly if i had a genie one of my first wishes would be to like have titanium bones and be able to run so i'm very jealous of you mm -hmm. that uh i have a, a little genetic problem so no more running for me oh, but okay got honestly, it yeah a little bit busy with with other things in life now so my training my training has gone downhill 2023 has not been good for nick's health okay yeah yeah no you've um, been busy that's been been clear so but uh it was our our main clinical year um at uh at, at hms and then i have my big usmle exams which i'm taking back to back so after this year things should lighten up a little bit um but yeah um, were there other things we wanted to touch on? We kind of, I think, yeah, I think we hit on all of them, um, that I had in mind anyway, and anything we missed, I guess we can just fire up when you're ready to come back on if you want to. Yeah, it was it, honestly just nice to vent with someone who I think like yeah. we're on the same page with, yeah, fine problematic messaging. And I honestly don't have a good answer. When you asked the question earlier, like, how do you combat the sensationalists? who are grabbing up a lot of the attention and growing their following like gangbusters. Cause you can push back. And I think we both have to some extent, I don't know how effective it's been either publicly or back channeling. Yeah. Somebody doesn't know. I mean, I, I like, it's all just kind of, I don't have any good information to suggest one way or the other outside of just what people send me. So I know there's a lot of people who are like, they'll reach out and say, Hey, I appreciate you did that. I mean, here's the thing, like someone who's mad about it. There may be a couple of people who say, I'm going to mute or block you. I was like, <laughs> you get that too. But, uh, I, I just, I don't expect people who disagree with me to necessarily reach out and be like, you're going the wrong direction either. So it's probably a skewed, a skewed perception on my part too. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. I don't think there is a great answer one way or the other. I think it's good to have the conversation out there. So people are thinking about it and that they actually, I mean, people will listen to this and they'll think, okay, there is, you know, there is some things to look for or not look for when it comes to the messaging that I see online. And maybe that'll help to some degree drive who they tend to give their attention to versus others. Yeah. I also think we can help promote like the people who are 
you know, at every level of advice giving, being like overall positive and productive. Mm-hmm. Some people like apart from yourself that I jump to mind is like, have you been following Dave Dana over this past year? Oh, season? yeah. Mm-hmm. He's so great. And he, he like falls into the same frame as Chris Cornell as like, yeah. I think he talked really well to the lay public and was like, look, here's what I'm doing and here's how it's working. Mm-hmm. But I'm not an expert like and and take what you can from this mm-hmm. and leave what you don't want. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually find that a really appealing approach. For sure. Yeah. Chris has been doing it for a while. Yeah. And uh, Dave is a phenomenal story so far. You've been you've been helping him with his nutrition, right? Am I mistaken about that? I thought he said something about working with. Yeah. You. Well, I was the first person to reach out to. I don't know. The very first. But he says that um, back when he like he started his journey. It was earlier, like last year. And I just reached out to him because he seemed like a genuine guy. This is when he had like a few thousand followers. And mm-hmm. there was something that was special about him. And then he just exploded. Yeah. I think he's like at 70,000 followers now. Is yeah. Like a, I think actually, Arnold Schwarzenegger retweeted him or something like that. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger has been retweeting him consistently. Um, but yeah, I mean, for those who don't know him, Dave, I think it's been 16 months. He's lost 130 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not gone one week in over 16 months without losing some weight and just like changed his life entirely. So he's just been racking up wins, but he's like consistently posting, um, you know, positive remarks, like, and, and showing, you know, what he does and where he slips up mm-hmm. and like the adult, just like real life decision he makes like, you know what? I was with my fiance's like parents and they serve this. So, you know, what? I ended up eating this it was the best choice. No, but I made the conscious decision because X, Y, and Z, and I didn't completely fall off the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's that non-absolutist approach, mm-hmm. you know, that I, I think, you know, can be, can be appealing. Yeah, um, for the listeners who are now interested, I'll just share his, uh, Twitter handle is just at Dave E Dana and that's D A N N A. So give him a follow great. if you want to follow that journey. Cause he is well on his way, but I know he is the first to tell you he's still still working at it. So <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's very humble. You should have him on. He's getting married. Yeah. In a month. yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should shoot him a note and have him on. That'd be great. I've had Chris on before, but I think you're right. I think they're very similar kind of stories where it was like they whatever they were doing wasn't working. They recognized that and made some changes and figured out what was going to work for them and then got really consistent within it. And, yeah, you know, Chris. as the endurance runner, me can appreciate the number one thing regardless of what training principle you follow is consistency. So finding the one that you can be consistent within is going to rule the day in most cases. Yeah, no, Chris is, Chris is excellent. Um, But yeah, well, we'll have to repeat this and I'll have hopefully some cool data to be sharing with you at some point soon. Um, I wish I could speak about it, but he's probably had one paper under review for five months. Oh man. Sitting there. Is there, how long is it nor is it really hit or miss on how long that ends up taking in most yeah cases? you don't really have any levers to pull like it's just sitting there they, yeah we don't get to it and the editors aren't on the reviewers and it's like all right you're and in do, research you, i mean you can pull it and move <laughs> over but like you just you're you're at the you're at the mercy of the process um mm-hmm. but this this will be a, a, a big bomb to drop uh Hopefully we get it in the journal we want it. And then we have some others coming, but all very exciting stuff. I'm really looking forward to next year. Um, and so there'll, there'll, there'll be some stirring of the pot. Let me put it that way. Very <laughs> cool. Well, well, I'll be here for it. And uh, you want to let the listeners know where they can find you too, before I let yeah, you go. I'm uh, at Nick Norwitz on Twitter. That's Perfect. where I'm most active. And uh, I've been trying to do some more 
YouTube breakdowns. I really enjoy just like reading papers and then posting little digests of them. Very impromptu completely on my cell phone, but it's a little way to, there's so much interesting stuff coming out and I enjoy reading it. So. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people would enjoy uh, Nick Nord's long form option to go along with uh, Twitter. <laughs> well, Twitter has a long form option. I love that. That's true. My yeah. Favorite tweets now are like people really do engage with the uh, long tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, so credit to the audience there. But uh, anyway. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Nick. It was great to chat. I think this will be a fun yeah. one to get to get out to the listeners. And uh, yeah, we'll have you back on soon. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so Take much. Care. All right, everyone, if you're still here, you're sticking around to hear about how I use the show sponsor Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. For Element, they make an electrolyte supplement. So what I know about me is that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of fluid loss. So what that means is if I go out for a run and I lose two liters of sweat, then I'm also going to lose roughly... 1228 milligrams of electrolytes with it which ironically happens to be about one packet of element so what i likely will do is if i'm going out for a longer training session or i'm going to be out in the heat and sweating a lot i'm going to supplement the fluid intake i have with electrolyte to make sure i have that stuff in balance the way this usually looks for me is i'll wake up in the morning and i'll have a cup of coffee and i'll put half of one of those packets in with my coffee it will be one of their chocolate flavors though because it's coffee after all i'm not going to stick one of the fruity flavors in there so that gets me kicked off then what happens is i go out for the workout and then i am drinking basically to thirst but i am also targeting some numbers at times when it's hot enough and i know what my sweat loss is but generally speaking for every liter of fluid i'm taking in i'm matching that with 614 milligrams of electrolytes to make sure i'm staying on top of that and remaining hydrated throughout that training session If you're interested in a deep dive and figuring out more about your fluid loss and electrolyte needs, I actually have a couple podcast episodes that might be interesting to you. One is episode 358 with Andy Blow, where I go over all things hydration. And he talks about how I came up with that 614 milligram loss number and how you can maybe find out about yours as well as how much fluid you are losing with some simple at-home tests. Also, I did an episode a while back, episode 300, which is just titled Personalizing Workout Hydration. So check out both of those if you're interested in doing a deep dive into your hydration and electrolyte needs. Something new I added to my training and racing this year are exogenous ketones. The research for exogenous ketones is still in its early stages, but there is a lot coming out and it is getting more convincing in my opinion to the degree where I wanted to try it out. I actually stress tested it during a 15 hour 100 mile run at the Rocky Raccoon 100 earlier this year as a way to confirm whether it was something I was gonna include in my racing protocol. One thing I was a little nervous about with exogenous ketones, like I am with anything I'm ingesting during an ultra marathon, is what is it gonna do to digestion. I was interested in the recovery research for some time now with exogenous ketones, and there are some newer research studies now that suggest it could also have some performance applications as well, if you're able to tolerate it and get it in the right dose. So when I decided to try it out, I went with Delta G ketones because they are the ketone ester that basically all the research that has promising effects 
is tied to and it's their formula that's being used in those research studies. So a lot of times you'll just go and look for an exogenous ketone and there's all sorts of potential issues with that, whether it's a dosage or just the incorrect type and it's not actually gonna do what the research suggests it would do. So to me, it was looking at if I want to potentially get the benefits that these could be bringing, I need to be using the one that they're actually showing the research with. So that was Delta G ketones. They actually received the DARPA funding and grant to actually put together that form. So like I said in the, the intro message, they have 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. My protocol with this right now, and this is something where I am evolving as I kind of do more with it, but at the moment, I'll do a bottle of their ketone performance, Delta G performance, and that is their little blue bottle. So I'll take one of those about 20 minutes before a big key training session, and that's it. If it's a race day though, I'll do that same protocol, but I will take another bottle about every three hours after that. So if I'm doing something that's longer duration, like that 15 hour Rocky Raccoon effort I've just described, I would be doing that again at three, six, nine, and 12 during that particular performance. So like I said in the intro, if you want to chat with one of their experts, you can actually go to deltagketones.com and they have a consultation service there right now where they will help you understand the research and whether your lifestyle is even something that they would, they would be worth considering it for. So if you want to get a little more information on that, that option is available to you. Links to both Delta G ketones and element electrolytes can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 